0: We are going to be in John's gospel again this morning. We're going to continue our study, just marching through the gospel of John, encountering Jesus and his amazing truth, and of course everything he's doing is is displaying the truth of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God. And this morning, as we mentioned earlier, we are going to be taking communion together. So don't don't do this now. I know you have your your cup with the elements there, Uh, but just want to point your attention to this just for a moment and say, you know, this... This is, um, this is just a, a piece of plastic, just a cup with some juice inside and a little piece of bread and, and then the cellophane on the top, and it's, it's pretty simple, right? And there's nothing magical per se about, about that, right? It's just, just a very simple thing that we have, but it points to something very deep and very profound. And this morning's title is trying to help us think about that as the text helps us think about that. And so the title is Eating is Believing. Okay, eating is believing, you've heard seeing is believing, well this is eating is believing. And the reason for that is there's something about communion, there's something about partaking of the bread and the cup with, with juice in it, there's something about that that illustrates or is an analogy for what true faith is. The Bible talks about true faith in a way that, is, that it likens it to eating, to taking in food and, and also of course uh, drink. So I'm going to read to you from John 6, verses 53 through 58. We're not quite there in our study. We're going, as usual, going sequentially through the book. So I'm jumping ahead this morning because it's Communion Sunday. I'm jumping ahead just a little ways to verse 53. And I would like you to read with me the passage here from verse 53 on to verse 58. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in Him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread. Which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These are powerful words spoken by Jesus thousands of years ago, and they are also strange words. If we're honest, if we admit our kind of our natural way of thinking through things, this is kind of a strange thing to say. For Jesus to say, You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It does sound odd, doesn't it? Yet there's something so deep here and so encouraging that we're going to consider. And as we kind of make our way back to this, I want to remind you of what was happening in the context. So in the beginning of John chapter 6, it was several weeks ago we looked at this passage. Pastor Rob taught on this text. But several weeks ago we looked at the passage where Jesus is with his disciples. They had some private time and then the crowds of people were looking for him. And Jesus said, how are we going to feed these people? And the disciples are frantic and don't know what they're going to do about it. And then they look and they notice there's this young boy who has um, five loaves of bread and two fish. And they say, hey, the only food here is the five loaves and the two fish. And so you remember what Jesus does. He multiplies the bread and the fish and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. Estimates are somewhere probably in the ballpark of 25,000 people Jesus fed with that small amount of food. So that was a significant miracle. Demonstrating the power of Christ to multiply bread and feed all those people. Significant miracle. And it was a miracle that met the people in their their natural need. They were literally hungry, and Jesus literally fed them with that food. So that's where we began in John chapter 6. And now, as we move toward the end of the chapter, Jesus has sort of changed his focus from the natural. There was a miracle involved, but it was really natural bread that he multiplied for them. He moves from there to the spiritual, from the appetite of the body to the appetite of the soul. And so now we're in this section, it's traditionally called the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is proclaiming that he is the bread of life, that he's the true bread people need. His way of saying, more than even bread for your bodies, you need bread. Me. That's what Jesus is saying. More than you need bread for your bodies, you need bread for your soul, and I am that bread for your soul. I am the source of spiritual life. That's what he's communicating. Now, before we dig more deeply into that and we look back at the section we just read, I want to remind you of something else that uh, we just briefly touched on a few weeks ago, but I want to go a little deeper into this because this helps us appreciate what was going on as well. Jesus had multiplied that natural bread. They had eaten it. Uh, they, they wanted more, they had this interaction with him, and they're wondering, hey, what, what do we have to do? And uh, Jesus says, hey, this is, this is what you do, this is the work of God, believe in him whom he sent. So now I'm back in verse 30. So look at verse 30 of chapter 6. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now stop there for a moment you see where they, they refer back to their ancestors and they say, hey, way back when, in the book of Exodus, uh, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they're basically imploring Jesus, uh, would, you, would you do something like this again? They had bread from heaven. You multiplied that bread. That was amazing. But basically, can you do another bread thing? Give us some more bread. How about bread from heaven? That's what they were wanting. And I, I want us to consider... Something that happened back there in Exodus that they themselves weren't really tuned into, but something that we can be tuned into, and it helps us marvel over Jesus and what he's doing and what he's describing here. So turn back with me now to Exodus, Exodus 16. We're going to take a look at this passage where there's this bread from heaven, and we're going to see something very interesting back here. So Exodus 16, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 2 and just read along with me and I'll explain it as we go here it says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness now they had been they had been set free from Egypt okay they'd been liberated by God from Egypt they had gone through the red sea now they're in the wilderness basically in the desert and Right away, they notice there's no water and there's no bread. Well, God had provided water, but now they're realizing, hey, there's, there's no bread to eat. And so, so they begin grumbling and complaining against Moses and Aaron, the human representatives of God. They're, they're grumbling against them. And so it says in verse 3, "...the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full." For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly. You're killing us all with hunger. Hey, you, you should have just left us in Egypt. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, we were enslaved. Yeah, we were beaten down and oppressed. But at least we had food. Here we are in the wilderness, in the desert. We have nothing. And you can, if you put yourself in their shoes, you can appreciate what that was like. We, we don't do too well if we go just a few hours without food. You know what hunger feels like. you felt it. Well, imagine that going on and on and literally fearing that you're going to die of starvation. That's what they were experiencing. And so it's understandable they would be complaining like this and angry like this. They're desperate. It's normal human response, of course, that reveals their underlying distrust in God. But continue on. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people go out and gather a day's portion every day, and I will test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against him, and what are we that you grumble against us? So he's saying God is going to respond. God is going to help us. He is going to cause bread to rain from heaven. And then just jump down to verses 13. 15. So it came about at evening, the quails came up and covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Interesting. Interesting. The name manna, you may have heard that. That's what this bread is called. It's called manna. Do you know what manna means? Manna means what is it? That's right. It means what is it? Like, what is this? What is this bread? This is strange. I mean, imagine going outside of your front door of your tent or whatever, and, and there's, there's bread on the ground. I've heard stories of missionaries bringing people back from third world countries and walking them around in the supermarket, and you can imagine the what they experience is they're walking around just seeing the food everywhere. I mean, it blows their minds because they're not accustomed to such things. They don't even believe that was possible. There would be such an abundance. Well, this was that and, and much more than that. This was a true miracle that God provided bread from heaven, and it was there every day for them. And then that on the sixth day, there was twice as much so they could rest on the seventh day. So, I mean, God was providing abundantly for them in a miraculous fashion. But notice, like with what we were talking about in John 6, It is a miracle, it is supernatural, but it's still bread that feeds their physical bodies, isn't it? It was bread that they literally ate to feed their physical bodies. Just like the bread of the beginning of John 6, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. Same type of food. Okay. One more thing before we turn back to John 6. We're kind of going all over, but part of the reason we're doing this is because it shows off the harmony of Scripture and the symmetry of Scripture. But jump to Deuteronomy Chapter 8, there's something else said about this manna I want you to see in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And notice verse 3 He humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Okay, now turn back to John chapter 6. In this scene where Jesus is interacting with this crowd of people, many of them religious people, they knew their Old Testament, they knew their Bible, they knew what their ancestors had experienced, they knew God had miraculously provided bread for them, and they wanted more bread for themselves. There was bread earlier when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, and now they want more. Do something like that again for us. And now we're going to consider if that's the miracle of the actual bread and you see their cravings, where they want more and more and more of it, Jesus pivots in a very significant way here. He Essentially, he refuses to give them more physical bread. He he refuses to give it to them. In fact, he's going to declare that he is the bread they need the most. That more than bread for their bodies, they need bread for their souls. So we're going to talk about that, but even before we that I want, to, I want to share with you is another thing. I'm just sort of jumping around in John 6 here somewhat because there's, there's such richness here. But just notice verse 63. So go ahead, John 6, 63. I know we're all over the place in John 6, but just bear with me. This is where Jesus, in the same context, kind of gives them an interpretive key. This is where he is seeking to awaken them to not just the natural level realities, but the spiritual realities. Notice verse 63 he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Do you see that? They're, they're fixated on the physical. They're preoccupied with the, the actual bread. And, and we, if we were there, naturally speaking, that would be our tendency as well. Especially if we were physically hungry. A few weeks ago when I, when I preached through a, a section of John 6, I talked about being hangry, right? And that feeling of being super on edge when you're just your body is hungry and you're more irritable. Well, that's all part of that human weakness and frailty and then the, the sin and sort of bad attitudes that emerge from, from that place. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, there's something deeper. There's something you need more. And so this Key verse in 63 is that there's a spiritual reality here that I'm pointing you to. In fact, that's the reason that he he refused to give them more bread. That's the reason that he cut them off from that physical bread. He he was, and, and trusting his father in the process, he was pointing them to think deeper about their spiritual appetite. About their deepest level of need and he was pointing them to himself as the provision for that need. If if the manna in the wilderness was a strange kind of bread, and it was, if it was unique and supernatural and like nothing anyone had ever seen before, is not our Savior, the Lord Jesus, otherworldly and strange and foreign? To to believe that, listen, this is where we really get into the nitty-gritty here. To believe that, more than even food for my body or anything else for a natural appetite, natural appetites for relationships, natural appetites for safety in this world, natural appetites for health or prosperity, or natural appetites for uh, any number of things, material things, again, food, whatever. More than all of that, we need Christ. We need our God. We need His life. I mean, to believe that He is truly enough for us to have spiritual life. That too is a, is a, wait a minute, what is that? Wait a minute, that sounds strange or that sounds different. Uh, in Deuteronomy 8, he said, I, I, I humbled you. I humbled you. I, I caused you to see that you, need, that you need me. And he says that you're going to eat this bread that your fathers didn't know. So, so here's a bread that we don't know, naturally speaking. It's very unique. It's otherworldly. It's foreign. And it begins to help us appreciate when Jesus says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's speaking spiritual words about a spiritual reality. And it was, it was, um, it was scandalous to them. It was offensive to, to Jewish people. For one thing, it sounds like he's prescribing cannibalism. And that's really weird. And not only that, not only is it weird, but it's also illegal. According to their law, they're not to take in blood. There's these passages in Leviticus that talk about how the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says, do not ingest the blood. But then he talks there in the same context about atonement and covering and dealing with sin. And here Jesus is pointing to something amazing. He's saying, look, I am the provision. And you do need to take all of me in. You need to ingest, take me in. You need to trust in me completely for atonement, for forgiveness, for life. He says, in our main passage, you can just turn back there. We're going to jump around a little bit more, but just turn back there. He says, in verse 53 again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have, get this, you have no life in yourselves. Yeah, your your heart is beating, your blood is pumping, you're active, you're doing things, but he says there's no life in you, really. You're just the walking dead. You're just like zombies. There's no real life inside of you unless you have me, unless you take me in. There's no life. There's no supernatural love or joy or peace. So now let's, let's go even one layer. We're just going to dig a little deeper, okay? Just dig with me a little bit deeper. And I'm going to start by saying this. In a very real sense, this whole death problem, spiritually speaking, that we were just talking about, in a very real sense, we ate our way into this problem. We ate our way into this problem. Going back to Adam and Eve. how so it all began, right? God creates them, fills the world with abundance, says basically, enjoy, have at it. And he says, there's just one tree you're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, in the day that you eat from that tree, what's going to happen? You'll die. And they chose to partake of that tree. Those trees, other trees they had eaten from, were provisions of food for them. To literally sustain their physical life on those fruits of those trees that were all around them. And God says, don't eat this one. And when you do, it's basically like you seeking to sustain your life on your own knowledge of good and evil. It, it was a step of independence. It was a step of, ready for this? This is going to be huge when you think about what we've been seeing in John, John's entire gospel. It was a step of unbelief. It was unbelief. It was self-reliance. It was, we're going to do it our way. And God says, that is death. So we ate our way into this mess. And now what he's saying here in John chapter 6, with this unique language, this profound language, is he's saying, you eat your way back out of the mess too, Meaning, if it all began with unbelief and us taking in something that we believe was better for us, he's saying the way out, the way to redemption, the way to salvation, the way back to God is taking in Christ, is belief, is trusting. is saying, I, I, God, I tried to live without you and I can't. I need you. You're my only hope. Because my mindset, my knowledge of good and evil... My bad attitudes and sin and all the the lies that I believe and the lust that I'm enslaved to, it's all death to me and I need you. And Jesus comes to tell us, hey, I'm here for you. Take me in, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will live. And unlike the Israelites who ate that bread and still went on to die, and unlike the people in John 6 earlier who ate that bread but still went on to die, said, you eat this bread, you take in me, and you will never die. You will be alive forever in union with your Creator. It's the new birth. It's powerful. Truth. Jesus knew it was coming. His disciples didn't fully understand, but he knew it was coming. That he would be betrayed, that he would be wrongfully accused, that he would be tried, that he would be executed, and that on the cross his body would be broken, and his blood would be shed. He will die that we might live. There's a parallel here too. This is where Scripture is just truly amazing, making sense of everything we experience. Do you know that for you to eat and survive, naturally speaking, the other things must die? Plants must die for you to eat. Fruit must die for you to eat it and be nourished by it. Animals must die for you to eat them and be nourished by them. And Christ says, I will die that you might live, spiritually speaking. On the cross, he gave of himself in the most amazing act of love ever conceived, So he says, take me in. You need my flesh. You need my blood. You need me for you. That's your only way to life. There is no life in you whatsoever. You need me. And and that was um, amazing. That was foreign to them. He was saying, I am the bread of life. I'm the one you need. And and that's not just... um, warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. I don't know, you may have, I kind of have a picture in my mind. It's probably in some ways influenced by the different movies and things, but kind of what you picture Jesus looking like, or you might have thoughts like that and sometimes feel uh, warm feelings and comfort feelings, and that's fine, that's appropriate. Of course, we don't know exactly what he looked like, but that's fine. But, but what he's describing here is he's saying, you, you, if you have me, if you take me and you have life. And later in John 17, verse 3, we've mentioned this many times, but John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So so I want you to think about this way. This is what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just, you know, fire insurance. It's not just going to heaven when we die. It's not primarily some place to go. And this is maybe, this is a, a rhyme of sorts, but it's not a place to go primarily, but it's a God to know. It's a God to be known by and a God to know. And when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I- I'm how you know God. There is no way to the Father but through me, he'll say later. I- I- I'm the way to, if, if in, the, in the garden, in the fall, we walked away from God in independence, trusting in our own resources and mind and abilities and ability to satisfy ourselves and prove ourselves and everything else, then he says that he's the way back to God. God. Trust in him. And this was, um, this was controversial. And many of them weren't buying it. Let me show you that. Look at verse 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, you've seen me and yet do not believe. That's very sad. Go on to verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Notice the next verse. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus the Son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Don't grumble among yourselves. Do 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 you see the resistance Do you see the the natural aversion to this kind of bread? There's like no appetite for it. Look at verse 51 and 52. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, come on. This is crazy talk. Verse 60 and 61. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? And look at verse 65 and 66. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It's intriguing. I mean, he's right there. God is right in their presence, right in front of them, saying He's the source of life. And like, ah, pff, I don't think so. Oh, this is weird. It's crazy. We need to eat His flesh, drink His blood. No grumbling, just like their ancestors. By the way, grumbling of the provisions of God. Here is the most amazing provision of God. I'm like, ah, I don't. Nah, just not really hungry for that. Don't understand it. He's talking about a level of need and dependence that's frankly humiliating. I don't think I'm into that very much. At best, it sounds strange, and at worst, it's like deeply offensive. And, and this, is, this is where I pray the rest of us are. Notice what happens next in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Are you leaving too? And look what Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus says nowhere else we can go. You're our only hope. You're all we've got. It's to say, God, I I I realize that there's no life in me left to myself. Miserable, discontent, fearful, constant conflict with others, greedy, insecure. I need you. I need I need life. I I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need grace. The disciples with with Peter as their spokesman were understanding something of of this truth that Jesus was in fact their, their bread. Believing in Christ is like eating a bread this world has never known. Whether the irreligious world, the secular community, or the religious world. This is still... It's different than both of those categories. And Jesus had both in his audience back then. Think of Matthew 5 and verse 6 where Jesus said in the Beatitudes, well-known section of the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And who was there at that time in their midst as the fullness of righteousness? But Christ, the source of life, the wellspring of every, every good thing that comes from God. All the love, all the joy, all the peace, all the grace, all the mercy, all the compassion. And offering people a way out of the death that they choose. The death of their own sin and the death of eternal death to come. Offering them an alternative Offering them hope. So when we when we partake of communion, this little cup that we'll do in a moment here, cup and the the bread, we're doing something unique. We're doing something that's unusual. It's not common. You don't do this just anywhere. We do this together at church. It's it's unique. And, And we do this to signify something even more unique. We do this. As a manifestation of our trust that Christ is our life, that we need him, that, that is what is primarily different about us. That is what our, our fellowship centers around. It centers around this, this agreement that we have together, mutually believing that Christ is everything to us. That is primarily what makes us different as followers of Jesus. It's this understanding. There's lots of things that we do in, in, in going to church and commitments we have and moral stances we take and traditional values, and those are all good things as far as they go. But, but there's something deeper here. And I just want to read to you some thoughts that I had as I was, I was thinking about communion and, and what this means and how it's, it's so deeply tied to Jesus and his life and his death and his flesh and his blood. And I thought of um, an expression I've heard several times where people say, you know, you can think of evangelism in this sense. It's, uh, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where I found bread. I'm not coming and saying, hey, come and and do life well like I do life well, really. That's not our message. Our our message is, hey, I, I can tell you where there's hope. I'm just one beggar who has found bread and I'm telling you where you can find bread. And so along those lines, we can say, as we sit and partake of communion, we we are beggars who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness that is outside of ourselves. If in the garden it all began with steps of independence, self-reliance, pride and unbelief and idolatry and all those things, then, then through Christ, God has welcomed us back to dependence and trust and to believing that, he is our righteousness, and He is our satisfaction. And even though we struggle, and even though there are so many things about us that uh, I just wrote down, we can be just as anxious, depressed, greedy, and lustful as everyone else. We can just get just as irritated on the road, just as selfish when our service is slow at the restaurant, just as scared going into surgery, just as... Anxious or angry when our flights are delayed, just as protective of ourselves and our stuff, just as manipulative or sneaky in trying to get our way, just as apt to lie to others to make ourselves look better, just as jealous scrolling through our Facebook feed. Sometimes our kids can make just as destructive of choices, though we don't revel in that and we don't want for that to happen. Uh, The reality is, as statistics play out in my counseling office, I see it all the time that it's There's a lot of brokenness still in all of us in our flesh. And it just is what it is because Jesus said, you have no life in yourselves. If we were to look to ourselves, there really isn't any hope there. And so think with me of what Paul said in Galatians when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In communion, we're saying that's my only hope. Is that Christ loved me and gave himself for me, that he died, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And in every with every fiber of my being, I just say, God, I, I need to take that in. That's my only hope for life. So let's pray. And then we're going to partake together of communion. Father, thank you for this reminder from John chapter 6. While it's our natural tendency to be preoccupied with the things of this world, and while we can be often just as greedy or anxious or angry, just as scared. While that's the case, we've also come to see because you have drawn us to Christ. You have opened our eyes to see. You have awakened us to this appetite to see that Jesus is the answer to all our cravings. He is the answer for all our guilt and all our shame and all our brokenness and all our pain. He's the answer for all our suffering and even for our death because he is the resurrection and the life. God, be with us even as we partake of these elements this morning. Help us to realize that as real as these things are in our hands and as much as we can taste them in our mouths and swallow them into our bodies, that as true as these things are, it is also true that Christ came and lived and died and rose for us 2,000 years ago and that he ascended to your right hand, that he intercedes for us right now, that he is with us and that through your spirit he is in us and that that is the wellspring of life. And that that's where our fruitfulness comes from, and, and that's how we can have love and joy and peace and patience and compassion and, and all these other things. It's because of you. It's because you have found us, and you have rescued us. So help us as we partake to do so cheerfully and gratefully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.